I'm Marty Moscoway, and welcome to The Connection. Life is hard. That's both a truism and the title of our guest, Kieran Setia's latest book. He wrote it during the worst of the pandemic when hospitals were being overwhelmed by death and dying, when many people lost their job and many were lonely and alone, cut off from friends, family, co-workers, and community. The subtitle of his book is How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Setya says philosophy helped him as a kid grapple with big feelings, wonder and worry, anxiety and awe. He believes philosophy can help all of us deal with the hardships and uncertainties of life. His chapters are about grief, failure, injustice, absurdity and hope. Setya has lived with chronic pain for much of his adult life, which, while excruciating at times, has helped him better understand himself, his body, his relationship to the world, and the human condition. He's a professor of philosophy at MIT and joins us today on The Connection. And Kieran Setya, nice to have you with us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Nice to have you with us. As you write, your life is mostly good. It sounds like you have a happy marriage. You've got a good kid. You've obviously got a good job that pays pretty well. And yet you have, for almost the last 20 years or so, really suffered with chronic pain. And I hate to make you draw attention to the pain that you have, but how would you describe what it, what it feels like to you even now as we speak? Well, it's, I'm happy to talk about it. That's part of uh, what uh, kind of led me to write the book was the desire to be able to communicate about uh, conditions like this. So I have, I have chronic pelvic pain, which basically it's kind of uh, it's one of those conditions where the diagnosis is a name for the symptom and it doesn't really explain very much. So, you know, it started, as you said, maybe 20 years ago. And initially it felt like a kind of stabbing pain and an urgent need to urinate. But it, it's a kind of sensation of tension that isn't really responsive to anything I do physiologically. So it's really just a matter, uh, it has been a matter of coming to control my attention and uh, kind of stop fighting it in a certain way and come to, to reconcile myself to it. You know, I was thinking, can we really know your pain? We asked you to, to describe it, to use words. There's that scale of one to 10, you know, is it a seven? Is it a five? Is there something unknowable for us in not being able to completely understand your pain? I mean, I think it's always a, a challenge. This is an idea about pain that goes back to Virginia Woolf, actually, in this wonderful essay on illness in which she talks about the difficulty language has in communicating pain. But actually, I, I think often we can convey pain in a way that other people will resonate with. So if I say it's contracting or burning or tense, those terms do bring out like some of the distinctive character of the kind of pain I'm experiencing. So I, I think it's hard sometimes to communicate, but I don't think we're inevitably locked in the privacy of our own experience. And I think getting out of that privacy or trying to communicate difficult experiences is a, a source of solace. It's a source of solidarity and connection that really helps us, us cope with them. I remember the pain of childbirth. Of course, that was temporary. It's not chronic. And I remember being told, well, think of it as pain with a purpose. And I, you know, I wanted to slug the person that told me that. But, <laughs> but in hindsight, yeah, it's true. The purpose was to have a baby. Um, do you think of your pain as having a purpose? Well, I, 
I don't really. I think that, you know, there's a kind of idea that everything happens for a reason that, that I, I sort of recoil from. I think sometimes that, that there's a pain or a suffering and really uh, there is no good reason for it. It's not inevitably going to lead to to anything good. On the other hand, I, I think often a, a fruitful reaction to something difficult in life is to think not that it has a purpose, but to th- but you know, what can I make of this? Where can I go with this? What can I do with this? And I suppose that was part of the the context that led me to write a book about the difficulties of life, that I wanted to talk about what I was experiencing, but I didn't want to write a whole book just about my experience with chronic pain. I wanted to use it as a window into a kind of wider template of hardships in other people's lives, to use it as a kind of lever towards empathy for other people's difficulties. And I do want to get to all of that, but just picking up on what you said, though, how how did it change you? How has it made you, if not a different person, maybe even a better person? Well, I, it's funny you said that in the intro, and I, I think there's some there's some truth in that. But I I, I think it, it it there's a kind of oscillation. So he, there was a moment when I think at a point when I was beginning to realize being bounced from urologist to urologist that there wasn't going to be a treatment, and my initial reaction was I think unsurprisingly to be very angry and sure. bitter. And I remember sitting. Uh, kind of outside the clinic, I think, and just watching people walk by with this sense of fury that, you know, you don't know how good you have it being pain-free. And then there was a pause, a kind of moment, and I realized I have absolutely no idea what's going on with any of these people, any more than they have an idea what's going on with me. And if I had to say what the how it it is that forms of suffering like this can make us better people... It's that there, while we oscillate between a kind of self-pity and an outwardness, there are moments in which we, we can use it as a, as a form of connection with others, as a way to recognize that the, the, the kind of hardships we're undergoing don't really separate us from other people. In fact, the hardship of life is one of the deep commonalities that we have with everyone else. And, and that's really the spirit behind my, my approach to the hardships of life, is one of consolation and solidarity. Well, let me quote you, if you don't mind. You write, pain teaches us that we can't escape our bodies or properly appreciate being pain-free, but it teaches us more than that about our relationship to others and their relationship to us. If anything of value has come from my experience with chronic pain, it's a presumptive compassion for everyone else. Concern for others' own suffering is more akin to concern for others than it seems. And I really like that paragraph. Thank you. No, I, I think I, I do think there's a, a way in which getting outside of the loneliness of one's own difficulties and recognizing that as a form of kinship with others that that even in even in the the hardest times of one's own life, it's possible to feel compassion for others and to feel a connection with others is one of the good things that can come from suffering. Even if even if it it's not always the case that it does, and even if that doesn't somehow nullify the difficulty of suffering or somehow make it all for the best in the end. I think you know, sometimes we tend to gravitate towards kind of simplistic narratives on which you know, everything works out well. And I don't think that's true, but I nevertheless think we can make a, a better or worse situation of our own difficulties. Well, you got got me thinking at least about how we use the word disability to describe people who, you know, who don't have the sort of, uh, you know, average, normal, in quotation marks here, um, bodies. And, and we tend to focus on what is lost versus what can be gained f- for that person. No, that's true. I mean, I, I think disability is a case where, you know, m- like most illnesses involve some measure of 
pain and some measure of loss of abilities or capacities. Aging involves a kind of cumulative loss of abilities. So there's a way in which we all of us have a certain relationship to disability. And, you know, one of the slogans that disability activists have have pushed is that, uh, and that I think has real truth in it, is that it's disability is a kind of social problem, that the real problem with disability is not that it prevents you from living a meaningful life. It's that the social accommodations that make that possible are often not with us. And people sometimes react to that with puzzlement. I mean, you know, how, how could disability being, say, physically disabled in, in like needing to use a wheelchair or being sure. blind or whatever, how could that not be a terrible thing? And it, it's not that that isn't in itself bad. It's that there's so many different ways in which we can find flourishing in life that the effect of a kind of localized limitation is to close off one avenue, but there are so many other avenues and people are very adaptable at finding other ways to flourish. So the, the philosophical truth behind the evidence that, that people are surprisingly good at adapting to disabilities is a, a kind of pluralism about the different ways in which life can be good. The idea that no life has it all, no life is perfect, but lives can be good enough. And I, I think the, the real problem is, is when you know a localized disability precludes too much of life like if you know the fact that you have to use a wheelchair means you can't you know go to the theater or go to the museum or go to concerts or get an education or have a job then the effects become much more pervasive but in itself that kind of limitation that we can't do everything is something we all in some way have to accept as part of coming to terms with with our finitude let me ask you about philosophy, broadly speaking. I realize it's like, you know, asking about life itself. But um, is there a sort of therapeutic view or even a self-help view to how we could or should or maybe can think about philosophy? I think there is. And I think the idea that philosophical reflection on how to live should make our lives better goes back to the, the kind of early history of philosophy. It's something that philosophy has lost touch with uh, in the 18th, 19th centuries into the, the contemporary period to some extent. And I think we should recover that. But I think in doing so, it, it would reshape our picture of what self-help is. If you think of self-help as just about the most efficient means to securing your own happiness, right. philosophy may or may not be of use. But if you think of the goal of self-help as a flourishing life, living well in a way that involves engagement with the world and with other people in the kinds of ways that we really should engage with the world and other people, then I think philosophy has a lot to offer. And I think that's how we should think about the goal of of self-help. It really shouldn't be just about the self and how we feel. It should be about whether we're living good lives. Well, and I think self-help has a, has a bad connotation, maybe deserved or undeserved, whereas I think therapy, especially with a good therapist, yeah. is so much about philosophy. It's about living well. It's about living with the truth. You know, It's about living life as it really is, not how you wish it to be. No, I think that's exactly right. I think there's a kind of a- acknowledgement of reality that's crucial to to living a good life, even if the acknowledgement of reality is sometimes painful. I mean, I think that, that contrast between just feeling good and really engaging with life in a in a meaningful way comes out in in ca- cases like grief, where you know whatever we think about the the pain of grief, it's not a pain that 
is simply bad or that we wish we, we simply could extinguish because that pain is bound up with an appreciation of the value of other people and of our relationship with them. And that's a case where we can just see that, that living a meaningful life is not the same thing as being free of negative feelings or painful or difficult feelings. And I think you're right that that, that kind of goal of engaging with reality as it is, is one that therapy shares with the philosophical tradition. We're almost having a break here where self-help is kind of, well, if you do this, you know, then that will happen. Right. There's a risk that it will come. It will come in the form of tips for improving your own experience. <laughs> and the risk of those of that focus is that it will it will sort of draw you into yourself. It will be a way of, of focusing too much on your own feelings and too little on how your life relates to other people in the world around you, which is, is really, I think, what we, we should strive for. Well, and no one takes advice, even if they ask for it anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. Right. It's true that I, th I think, you know, th there's that moment sometimes you have when you go to someone with a problem and they immediately tell you, don't worry, I've got a solution. Right. And in fact, it feels like a, a failure to take you seriously. Actually, the, the acknowledgement of really paying attention to what you're going through and what someone else is going through is in part a kind of consolation in itself, a kind of human connection, but it's also necessary for really grappling with difficult things to really pay attention to them. Well, we have much more to talk about after this very short break. Our guest, our, excuse me, our guest is Kieran Setia joining us today on The Connection. He's got a new book called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. He's a professor of philosophy at MIT. Stay with us. Much more after this very short break. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscoen talking with Kieran Setia. He's a professor of philosophy, and we're talking about his most recent book, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Are you trying to sort of re revive or perhaps even um, bring to our attention the role that philosophy can play in our life? And I, I ask that because I sometimes think po poetry and philosophy, people say those words and everyone sort of runs <laughs> for the hills. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Have you had that ex experience? Uh, well, I, I definitely w w would like people to not run from for, to, for the hills when they hear hear the, the word philosophy. And I, I think it, it can be both intimidating and suggest something abstruse or, or sort of old-fashioned. And, and sometimes, you know, there's wisdom in ancient philosophy and philosophers who wrote 2,000 years ago. But what I most care about is the sense that that actually there's real insight in what philosophers are doing now and it's not been it hasn't been shared with people in the way I really wish it were and so I'm, I hope I can sort of build a bridge between the kinds of things that philosophers are, are doing that would be of use to people and an audience who can really kind of put it in a language that a wider audience can really appreciate. Well talk to us then about how even as a kid um, philosophy helped you deal with, you know, some of the the hardships in in a in your young life. Well, so I I think I really started getting interested in philosophy before I knew the word philosophy or really knew what it was. So I remember kind of moments in the playground of just being baffled that anything existed at all. So I'm looking at things in the playground and thinking. 
like, what if it just didn't exist? What if nothing existed? And those were, I think, the first philosophical questions I asked. And they're, they're kind of questions in what philosophers call metaphysics about the nature of reality. But I think they connect with what are really ethical questions about how we should feel about the whole of existence and the place of humanity in existence. And these are questions that religions often address and and, uh, often give us a kind of perspective that helps us make sense of and come to terms with the kind of difficulty of facing up to to reality and suffering. But I think even if you're not religious, you can ask those questions and that there are philosophical approaches to them that can can help us to sort of make sense of uh, the the meaning of life, basically. Well, and I think of philosophy and, and big questions, you know, what what makes life worth living? What is a good life? What do I owe other people? Who am I? I mean, are those the kinds of, of questions that y- you grapple with? No, that's exactly right. So that it, it's it, these questions are, are ones that we're all asking all the time anyway. We're all doing philosophy, whether we do it formally or in conversation with great dead philosophers or not. So it, the question is is never, like for any of us, is never, am I really going to do this? It's how reflectively am I going to do this? And uh, am I going to sort of reach out for help in doing it? And I think the philosoph- philosophical tradition can provide help in, in thinking through the difficulties of our lives, even acknowledging that the difficulties of our lives are particular to our lives. I think that the, the way this help is going to come from philosophy isn't going to be in the form of some simple slogan that you then just carry around you in life uh, that tells you what to do in every situation. It will come from attending to particular difficulties. So thinking about chronic pain, for instance, or thinking about loneliness or grief, and really trying to figure out, well, what is what is difficult about this? Why is it hard in a way that helps to orient us towards those particular challenges in life? You know, I was thinking about the pandemic. I, I wrote about that in, in an introduction to our interview, and you wrote part of this book during the pandemic. And it was, you know, obviously an extraordinarily difficult time for, for many, many people. And I do think for some other people, it was a time of, of reflection, of some soul searching, of, you know, having time alone with oneself, as scary as that can be, to say, what is my life about? I think that's really true. That, that I think it, it, it brings out the duality of loneliness, aloneness, and solitude, that, that you can, the, the kind of isolation that many of us experienced can involve a, the kind of pain of frustrated social need, the kind of pain of loneliness but it can also feel at times like a kind of peaceful solitude in which one has space to reflect. And I think, you know, the great resignation after the pandemic presumably came out in part of a kind of space to reflect in which people realized that the, the, the jobs they were doing didn't really match their values or that they were that their, their frustrations were being masked by the, the rush of daily life. And so I, I think that's true that, that there's been a period for many of us of stepping back and reflecting on what we really want and what we, what we really value. What was the pandemic like for you? Well, it, it, for me, it was mixed in, in exactly that way. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time writing and I got great pleasure out of that, I think, and great solace out of that. On the other hand, I also felt the the, the loneliness of it. I mean, I, I was lucky. I was home with my, my wife and kid, and so I wasn't 
you know, I wasn't living alone. But um, I mean, one of the things I did was I, I feeling this this sort of lack of connection with other people. I, I did this cliched thing of starting a podcast <laughs> in which I talked to other right. other philosophers about their lives, and uh, that was really wonderful for me because it was it, it was amazing to me how much in the course of what was really like a 30, 45 minute conversation with someone, the the sort of sense of human connection was was lasting. And the format of that, I think, is one that when, when psychologists work on loneliness, they often point out that actually it, it structured conversation in which you talk to someone who you don't necessarily know well and ask just a series of questions that draw them out intimately can can make a significant difference to your sense of aloneness. And that was exactly my experience, just talking to someone who I might not talk to again ever, but asking them questions about their life and, and just listening and paying attention to them really made me feel less alone. And, and again, the, as the social psychology of loneliness suggests, it's often attention to other people, like focusing on someone else rather than on your own loneliness or the, 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 the kind of need on your own part can actually answer that need. So so that was definitely my experience. Do you see a difference between aloneness and loneliness? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think that the, the, you know, just being alone needn't be itself a painful experience. I mean, there are these, as I said, these moments of solitude that can be very peaceful and reflective and, and themselves rewarding and kind of involve a lot of flourishing. When it becomes difficult is when our need for acknowledgement and recognition is frustrated. And, you know, I think one thing that, that came, comes out of philosophical reflection on that need, on the need for friendship or human connection, is how much continuity there is between simple acknowledgement of another's existence, the kind of acknowledgement that we get even in small interactions like when you're buying something in the grocery store and you exchange a few words with someone that that's continuous with compassion for someone or respect for someone and then ultimately continuous with the kind of deep friendship and intimacy we crave and actually even these small interactions make a significant difference to our sense of uh, loneliness the kind of sense of frustrated social need and I think one of the ways in which the pandemic continues to have a lasting and challenging fallout is that many of us have, have become sort of our lifestyles have changed. So we do a lot more things online or working from home. And in many ways that that can be good, but I think we don't want to underestimate how much the little moments of connection that make up, made up the texture of our lives pre pandemic, how much they were doing for us in giving us a sense of human connection that, that we really crave as human beings. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you about that. In this section of the book, you also have a paragraph or two about solitary confinement, not to make a, you know, a jarring yeah. turn here, but why, why that is torture for human beings. No, it, right. I, I think this, that that's sort of an extreme case that brings out how the need for recognition of just a kind of mutual acknowledgement is a very basic human need. And, and when it's absolutely frustrated, as in cases of solitary confinement, the effects are incredibly destructive. And it, it, it's a destruction of one's sense of one's own reality or existence. So when you look at the testimony of people who've been through this, yeah. they will describe themselves as feeling like they didn't really exist anymore. And I think, it, to some extent, our, our sense of our own reality is a sense of social reality, a sense that 
other people acknowledge us is crucial to feeling like we really matter at all. And, you know, I think there's something deep about, kind of deep connection between basic moral recognition of other people and emotions like love and friendship, these kind of forms of connection that we that we long for when we're feeling lonely. So there's a way in which it, love and friendship are themselves kind of moral phenomena. They're, they're, they're ways of acknowledging the value of another human being that are, they go beyond just basic respect for another human being, but it's the very same value, human, the value of an individual human being that we're acknowledging there and it's the sense of that value that gets threatened in these kinds of extreme cases of, of neglect or isolation. Sure. That's uh, Kieran Setia, our guest today on The Connection. We're talking about his most recent book, just published a couple of months ago, called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. And he's a professor of philosophy at MIT. You have a chapter on failure. <laughs> I must say, when I when I opened it up and, and I saw the name of the chapter and something about the word failure just feels so shameful. I mean, fail is one thing, the verb, but failure as a noun uh, just you know, seemed to kind of go right into my into my core. Um, do you, do, does that word have the same resonance with you? No, absolutely. And in fact, one of the things I, I explored in, in writing that chapter was the history of how the term failure yeah. The noun came to be applied to people, and yes, it, it, exactly. it has a surprisingly recent history. Yeah, that in, sort of in in, in kind of mid nineteenth century um, America, pe- the idea that it's not just that you can try and, to do something and you could fail, and a particular project could be a failure, but that you as a human being could just be a failure, that comes uh, into the language, and it comes with a kind of cluster of ideas about human life on which the value of a human being is being measured by basically economic success, by things like a credit report or a credit rating that tries to sum up the whole of your life as a success or a failure. And I do think that way of thinking, one thing that recognizing its recent history does is help us to see that that's not inevitable. It's not inevitable that we think of people as failures or as successes, as opposed to thinking, well, you failed at this, you succeeded at that. Mm-hmm. And it's all, you know, our lives are kind of a, a mess of different failures and successes. And we don't have to give in to the, this sort of pressure to sum it all up and say, yeah, this person's a winner, this person's a loser. That's, that's not a kind of inevitable categorization of human beings. But it sounds very capitalistic, yes, <laughs> in our society? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it come, that's right. It, it comes along not just with the idea that there's one kind of defining project, but the defining project is economic and that the, the measure of the success or failure of a human being has something to do with the, the you know, dollar value or the, you know, the credit rating, this, this sort of single financial measure that can be put on a human life. And so, yeah, I think those two ideas, the, kind of, the treatment of economic value as the cardinal defining value of a human life and the idea that a human being can just be a failure or or be a success, those two things come into our kind of conceptual system, a way of seeing the world in tandem. Can philosophy help us see our way through this or, or out the other side? I hope so, yeah. So I, I think there's sort of two big ideas here that I think philosophers have grappled with. One is just the idea, which a lot of philosophers have been tempted by, 
that the way to think about having a meaningful life is in terms of narrative, that uh -huh. what we really crave and should, should want out of life is that our life take the form of a kind of satisfying story. And I think we should resist that idea. I think it's a reductive idea. It, it, it sort of pictures our li us as like the heroes of Hollywood movies, which is obviously in a certain way tempting, but it, it not only risks letting us be defined by a single project where if we fail, we're just failures. But even if we succeed, there's a way in which it's very blinkering. Like it, it, to focus on just one thing as the defining project that makes you you, like often it's your career. If you ask what someone is, they'll just tell you their job. To focus on something that narrow is to fail to appreciate the diversity of human connections and human activities that really make up uh, the kind of good enough life that most of us should be aspiring to. And so I, I think you, diagnosing and trying to, to resist that way of seeing our own lives in terms of a single narrative is a kind of philosophical reconception of what makes a meaningful life that can really help us sort of get out of the grip of this this sort of monolithic picture of success and failure. I mean, what you seem to be saying is it's sort of tra it's it's the it's the traveling, not the getting there, that that life is about. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's that's a, a kind of a, an accompanying idea is that e even thinking in terms of projects like thinking of the fundamental meaningful activities in your life as completable as things you're trying to get through as it were that's also in a, you know a distorting way to look at things you know when you engage in a project when you're trying to to finish one you're looking at satisfaction always in the future or then when you achieve it it's in the past. And while you're engaging with, you know, trying to get a promotion at work or, you know, you want to have a kid or you want to get married, you're looking, what you're doing is aiming at something you don't have now. But not all activities are like that. There are activities we engage in, like parenting or being with friends or, you know, having conversations like this where the value of what's happening is present in the moment. That It's more about the journey, the process, as you said. And so I think that's an even deeper reorientation we can make where it's not just resisting the idea that one narrative defines us. It's also mm. resisting the idea that it's projects as opposed to the process of engagement that is the real focus of value. You mentioned that you don't sort of buy into this idea of, of living our lives as an unfolding narrative. You even quote one of my favorite writers, Oliver Sacks, who, who, who thought of perhaps his life, maybe other people's lives that way. I have to confess that I sort of do. I, you know, I, I try to live my life as if it were a movie in that I, I do things that, that, that matter, you know, that make sense, um, that hopefully have some good in the world. Um, so I, I do think there's a way to live life as a narrative that isn't entirely, you know, selfish or Hollywood. No, I think that's true. I think w one of the challenges here is that when we think of narrative, we, we may gravitate towards a certain style of narrative where there's the hero, they face a challenge, right. they triumph over the challenge, they live happily ever after. And if that's the kind of narrative you have in mind, I think it's, it can be distorting. But it's, Actually, there's no reason, you know, one way to put this is to say, yeah, okay, 
if we engage in storytelling and kind of live our lives as narratives, it doesn't have to be that kind of narrative. So there's a wonderful book by a poet and critic, Jane Allison, called Meander Spiral Explode, which is about the variety and diversity of modes of storytelling. It could be a character study. It could be a kind of branching narrative. It could be a, a kind of spiral that, that, that loops around again and again. And I think if you think, well, okay, I'm going to broaden my vision of what narrative looks like, to all these wider ways of making sense, then maybe I think, uh, then I think I, I think I would agree with you that okay, if, if that's what we're looking for, mm-hmm. there's nothing particularly toxic about thinking of our lives in terms of stories or narratives. The danger was when it looks like this this sort of one hero narrative is the the kind of narrative, this linear path that we have to follow. And that's the kind of thing that I think we we can and should resist. We're up on a break here. I, I tend to think of my life more like in terms of Ingmar Bergman, you know, and something ah. out of Hollywood. <laughs> that's Kieran Setia, our guest today on The Connection. Uh, we've been talking about his uh, relatively new book called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Much more after this very short break, including why Groundhog Day is one of the great philosophical comedies. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and our guest, especially if you're just joining us, is Kieran Setia. We've been talking about his new book called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way, and he's a professor of philosophy at MIT. One of the things that uh, our guest says in his book is that Groundhog Day is one of the great philosophical comedies of uh, ever, and I think one of the great movies ever. Uh, this is, of course, the 1993 film directed by Harold Ramis. It stars Bill Murray, a very bitter and cynical TV weatherman who is in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to cover Groundhog Day. And he becomes trapped in this kind of time loop as he is forced to live that day over and over. In this scene, he's at a restaurant with his producer, played by Andy McDowell, with a waitress ready to take their order. I'm sorry, what was that again? I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. I don't think. Because you survived a car wreck? You folks ready to order? I didn't just survive a wreck. I wasn't just blown up yesterday. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. Oh, really? And every morning I wake up without a scratch on me, not a dent in the fender... I am an immortal. Special today is blueberry waffles. Why are you telling me this? Because I want you to believe in me. You're not a god. You can take my word for it. This is 12 years of Catholic school talking. (laughs) I love that movie. So, Kieran Setia, what makes this such a great philosophical movie? Well, part of it is that it's subject to so many philosophical interpretations. There's so many ideas in it. There's this, this idea of kind of living through cycle after cycle of, of suffering as his day repeats, which is, is an idea that, that is, resonates with Buddhism, that there's a kind of immortality, but the immortality, in fact, involves suffering, and that the goal is, in a way, to be free of it. I think it's also a movie in which the, the, it sort of tests the, this idea that the value in life is to be found in the journey or the process, not anything you accomplish or achieve, because there's a way in which Phil... 
uh, trapped in Groundhog Day, really can't produce any lasting change. So all he can live for is the process, the ongoing process of this day by day interaction. And it's also a movie about the connection between living your own life well and concern for others, because yeah. part of what enables him to come to terms with his situation is finding a way to become less selfish and to care about other people and to to sort of sacrifice his own well-being in a way. So I, I, all of those themes are sort of mixed mixed up in this kind of incredibly vivid, incredibly funny thought experiment in a way. Are you interested in comedy as as a way to understand philosophy? Is that a good venue? I, I am. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of comedy and, and, and stand-up. And I'm also uh, thinking recently about uh, the kind of origins of philosophy and the, the sort of this weird phenomenon that in, in, you know, early in the history of philosophy, there was Plato writing these dialogues that were very serious and deep. But there, was all, there were also philosophers like Diogenes the Cynic who... Uh, whose mode of doing philosophy was was comedic, like his way of doing things was to to mock people. You know, famously, he when Plato defined man as a featherless biped, Diogenes was supposed to have taken a a, a plucked chicken to Plato's <laughs> academy and said, "Is this a man?" Uh, or, or when Alexander the Great came to see Diogenes, who's reputed to be incredibly wise, and said. You know, I'll give you anything you want, and 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 you know, Alexander is standing over Diogenes as he lies under a tree, and Diogenes says, "Yeah, I want you to get out of the sunlight." <laughs> and so, these, the, I think, there's a long history of comedy disrupting our sense of what's normal or pushing back against convention or authority to open our minds to new ideas. That really goes back deep in the history of philosophy. So, yeah, I think there's a real affinity there. Have you ever done stand-up or tried it or even thought of trying it? I have definitely thought of trying it. I'm, uh-huh. I, you know, I have a, a colleague, uh, at Steve Yabla, who's extraordinarily funny, who just retired, actually, who, who once told, sort of told me that one of the things he loves about teaching, of lecturing in front of a classroom of students, is that it's like stand-up, but with very low expectations. <laughs> and I, I kind of like that, too, that like, right. you know, that students are grateful for any attempt to, to leaven your dry lectures with humor. So I feel right. like I, I'm comfortable making jokes in that context. I think doing it where people really expect you to be funny seems a little terrifying. Absolutely. I mean, I think it seems like one of the most terrifying things out there. Yeah, no, I, I, and I, I, I'm kind of in awe of people who do it. But, I, you know, I, I think the the doing an, an open mic night and just sort of getting up there for a few minutes, I think might be one of those experiences I should just kind of dive into just for the, just to shake myself up. Well, you do have a chapter on absurdity, which I think has, you know, some connection to comedy, right? A kind of a, a dark comedy that this world that we live in. No, absolutely. The sense, the, the idea that, that life is somehow senseless and we don't, we can, we can either, you know, you've got to laugh, otherwise you'd cry, is sort of one of the, 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 the deep philosophical reactions to the way in which we struggle to make sense of the universe or of human life and its place in the universe. And yeah, no, I, I think that that's exactly right. Can we make sense of the universe? Should we try? Well, I am. I think we should try. I don't know that we can, but I think that the aspiration to do that, which I think is part of many religious worldviews, sometimes gets thrown out when people by people who are not religious. And I'm not myself religious. I 
would describe myself as an atheist. And I think a lot of atheists think that in giving up on religion, they're also giving up on the, even the aspirational hope that we could make sense of life, the universe, and everything. But I think for many people like me who are atheists, that that desire, that sense of, of kind of the need to try and make sense of things remains. And I don't think it's essentially religious. I think you, what we're looking for there is a, a narrative of human life and human history and how it fits into the universe that, you know, in, in the same way as a satisfying narrative or story might make us think, oh, I, I get it. I know how to feel about things. I, I know what's going on that gives us that reaction. And I think it's possible to tell narratives of human history that are like that. It's just not inevitable that they will that we'll find one. So, you know, in in the in the book I talk about the contrast between how we should feel about a, a kind of story of human life in which human society falls apart and we fall into extinction and one in which we maybe face great diff- grave difficulties but through solidarity and progress towards justice we're able to make the best of them. And I think yeah, if, if we can if we can manage to shape human history in a way that does involve progress towards justice, even if we never achieve utopia, we can tell sort of through our actions help to make up a narrative of human life to which the right response would be, well, yeah, that's okay. I that's it could be worse. It's not so bad. Hmm. So I think in that sense we can we can hope to be able to make sense of human life. But whether it makes sense, if you're like me, an atheist, is really just down to what human beings do. There's no kind of transcendent guarantee that it's all going to make sense. If there's going to be sense in human history, it's going to have to come from us. I get the feeling, though, and I share this with you, that that the thing that worries you is climate change. No, that's right. When I talk about when I, I said it, I said it abstractly a moment ago that yeah. you know we could face challenges and human society could fall apart or we could make the best of them. In concrete terms, the challenge that that frightens me most is climate change. In part because it threatens to have such devastating consequences for you know refugee crises and global conflict. If we start facing severe water and food shortages. Those are conditions in which human beings historically have not done well. And so I think all aspects of justice, not just the injustice of, of the, the, the harms of climate change itself, are all bound up in how we cope with the, the challenges of the climate crisis over the next decades. And the question is whether us human beings can rise to that task. I don't know That's the answer right. to That's that. That's right. And I, I, <laughs> No, I think I, I think it's not the kind of thing that we can, as it were, predict. And I think predict prediction is, in a way, the wrong stance to take towards it. It's the kind of situation where, you know, sitting back and hoping it will all work out is not the right approach. There's a kind of danger in being in simply hoping it will work out. There's, I think, uh, Greta Thunberg said to the the World Economic Forum at, at some point, um, you know, I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. And I really resonate to that. That the, the the challenge is to is to take action in a condition of uncertainty, uncertainty about how effective we can be and how much difference it can make. But in a way, always knowing that things 
could be and will be worse if we don't take action. And yeah, that's the, the kind of predicament we face right now. You do have a chapter on hope, and, and you do quote Diogenes, who you say was your philosophical or is your philosophical hero. He says, when asked what is the most precious, what is most precious in life, he replied, hope. Um, but hope is not the same thing as faith. How do you see hope? Yeah, so I, 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 I've, I inc- so I've included a chapter on hope in my catalog of hardships, in part because I'm so, I'm, have been so ambivalent about it myself. Oh, and I wanted to explore that given that, you know, my hero Diogenes thought hope was this s- central, crucial good in human life. And I think for me, the, the, the big switch in sort of understanding hope more clearly was from asking should I hope or should I despair in this in black and white terms to realizing that the question is always, you know, what should I hope for? Mm-hmm. And so it's not just about kind of blind optimism or, or passively assuming that things will get better. It's about figuring out, you know, where hope should be directed. So I, I, when I think about my own ambivalence about this, it goes back to the way in which I think when you're dealing with something like chronic pain, hope can be very painful. Every time you go into an appointment and think, well, I hope this doctor has an answer, and then they don't again. You think, oh my God, I wish I just had not bothered. This was, this was, this was worse than just giving up. And so I, for a long time, I thought that my way of accommodating myself involved giving up hope. It was kind of an anti-hope attitude. I was just going to accept that this was going to be something I would live with. Mm-hmm. But I think that's not the right way to think about it. it. Really what happened was that I didn't fall into despair I shifted in what I thought I could hope for. So instead of hoping for a cure, what I found myself hoping for was to find a way to live with it that still allowed me to have a good life despite this unfortunate feature of it, or to write about it in a way that enabled me to find solidarity with and communicate and bring help to others. And I think that same shift applies to thinking about global challenges like climate change, that it's very tempting when you're reading the news, at least I find myself tempted, to read a bad news article and think, or the new IPCC report and think, okay, Uh I I despair. Or or to read something, some good news and think, oh my God, there's hope. Great. Someone's going to fix this problem. And neither of those really is a stable response. Mm. The question to ask is always, what can we hope for? And the answer is, well, you know, there's always something that we can strive towards you know if we think well we're not going to be able to keep global heating to 1.5 degrees then we say okay well let's go for 1.6 or 1.7 let's always keep kind of readjusting the course so that we've got some object of hope and i think it's it's for me enabling to recognize that that question you know what should i hope for in a way always has an answer there's always something to hope for and in that sense you know hope, hope never dies Well, I think of faith as kind of a belief. You know, you believe in something, whereas hope is about wishing for something. Yeah, maybe that's right. I think that's right. That hope is a kind of kind of condition of the will as well. There's a kind of commitment to finding a possibility and then striving towards it. Whereas, yeah, maybe that's right. That faith is 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 more a matter of just sort of knowing or or kind of having belief uh, or, or trust in something. Um, yeah, I think that in that respect, they're, they're different. Although I, I, maybe they're mutually supporting in some ways, <laughs> the, you know, the two, the two tend to, to fit together. You also talk about the sort of, there's an emotional attachment 
uh, associated or tied to hope, which uh, I'd never quite thought about that before. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's the, to really hope for something, you have to have a kind of investment in it. And this is why hope is painful. It's why, you know, in the Ted Lasso in the show, <laughs> they, they, they say it's the hope that kills you, this kind of British <laughs> soccer slogan. And it's true. They, it, hoping feels risky because when you hope for something, right. y- you're attached to it. It matters to you in a way that it's not just that you idly wish for it. You are invested. And I think uh, there is a danger there. It's just that the the alternative when something really does matter, which would be just to give up hope, to not be invested, is worse. There are things that really deserve our investment, even if they're precarious and even if we're not sure how they're going to work out. And I think, you know, fighting climate change and, you know, many things in our own lives have that character that it's worth being attached to them, even if we risk the the, the pain of frustrated hope. And the, the challenge is figure out, you know, where, where should I direct my hope? Like what, what can I hope for that's both worth investing in and re- in a way realistic? Final question in about a minute before I have to say goodbye. So how, how should we incorporate, involve philosophy as we've been talking about for the last hour in our lives? Well, for me, the, the, the lines between sort of philosophical theory and the kind of ordinary reflection that we already engage in about how to live are very blurry. And I think a lot of what we do when we, we face challenges in our lives and just try to describe them in a way that's attentive and reflective, I think a lot of philosophy is really like that. So one way, one way I suppose, to incorporate philosophy in our lives is to recognize how much of what we're doing is already continuous with what philosophers do. And by seeing that continuity kind of we, we can see a way to get help from philosophers. I mean, w- w- ideally, what I would be able to do as a philosopher is not describe my own life, but sort of take any given reader and take their life and say, tell me what's happening in your life, and I'm going to try to use a philosophical lens to clarify it. And I can't do that for every reader. I can sort of use myself as an example and hope that readers of my book think, okay, I see how you do this. I can now explore this strategy in making sense of and dealing with adversity in my own life. Well, Kieran Setia, great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much. And again, the book is Life is Hard, the author Kieran Setia, and it's subtitled How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Connection, where every week we explore different aspects of human nature, the human condition. You can email us at theconnection at whyy.org. You can follow us on Instagram. You can also be a friend on Facebook. Diana Martinez, the engineer for today's edition of Radio Times. There I go again (laughs) for The Connection. Debbie Vilder and Paige Murray Bessler, the producers. I'm Marty Moscoane.